This is the Math Venture Partners Podcast, Profiles in Courage. Hi, I'm your host, Mark Ackler, and we're here to talk about those pivotal decision moments, taken or not, that startup CEOs must make on a regular basis and the cascading positive or negative results from those decisions. Joining me today is Mike Evans, CEO of Fixer and one of the original co-founders of Grubhub. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, this is great. We're so glad you're here. So... Mike, would love to hear about your bio and an explanation of Fixer for our audience, but first, a little context for our audience about this podcast. The very act of leaving your job and starting a new company is a profound act of courage. You are taking both financial as well as career risk. The very act of being an entrepreneur is the definition of courage. In this podcast, we want to go deeper. Everyday entrepreneurs are faced with daunting, sometimes life and death decisions about how to go forward. Some examples of courage that entrepreneurs face on a daily basis is saying no to a promising new line of business that is off focus or off mission, sometimes firing a co-founder or a personal friend, facing the elephant in the room, the big issue that no one is talking about, being radically transparent with your board and your management team, having the uh, humility to ask for help when you need help, Investing in the long term at the cost of short-term sacrifices. Sometimes overriding your board strategically when you know you are right in your gut. Measuring and valuing the lifetime value of a customer more than one transaction at a time. Having clearly articulated company values and a plan to create a culture led by example that follows those values. So these are just some examples of courageous decisions that entrepreneurs have to make on a regular basis. And Mike, you've been in those shoes. You, you've been an entrepreneur now multiple times. You have a lot of success behind you. So tell us about yourself and your latest venture. Sure. So I'll start with myself a little bit and, and maybe yeah. lead into the venture. So I started Grubhub back in 2002 in my apartment and started by you know just going down the road and signing up restaurants for what at the time was really just a community guide and then very quickly became a transactional platform, you know, and then... Eight capital events, including eighty million in funding, and some mergers and acquisitions, and finally, ultimately, leading it with my partner Matt to, you know, through an IPO in 2014. I left, rode off into the sunset, quite literally. I, I got on a bike and, and rode my bike across the United States to wow. decompress. That's fun. How long did that take you? Uh, it took about three months. Yeah, um, everyone should do it. It was great. And then uh, stayed at home with my daughter for about two years before yeah. I started to get the itch to think about the next thing, and. You know, I had stayed pretty involved with the entrepreneurial community through that, talking to other other entrepreneurs and investors and, and sort of seeing what might be next. But really what happened is I got together with four other people who had been in the early days, early-ish days at Grubhub, and we started talking about what we might want to do next. We came really close to launching a video game company because as every software developer will tell you, they got into software development because they wanted to write video games, not because they wanted to create businesses. But we decided that if we did a perfect job at that, the world would not necessarily be a better place, at least for the games that we were thinking about creating. And so we went back to the drawing board and talked about a bunch of different ideas. I am a big proponent of impact businesses where the social impact of the business is completely coupled with the business model itself. And so we were trying to find an idea where that was fundamentally true. And so 
the business we ended up creating is called Fixer. Fixer is an on-demand handy person service where you can go and schedule somebody to come work on some project in your house that's one to four hours long. We show up on time, do great work. It's all based on an app. The the thing that really sets us apart from all the other players in the space currently is that the supply side of the marketplace, it, it mimics a marketplace in a lot of ways, but the supply side of the marketplace is W-2 employees with a career path. So so that's very unique. And actually, before I, I should also say to our audience that math, for full disclosure, math is an investor and fixer. Yeah, and I should say for full disclosure that I'm an investor in math, which is an incredibly inefficient way to go about getting funding for your business, you know, minus the management fee. But I see that management fee as the the salary that I pay to the VCs to come and give me advice. So it's fine. It's all it's fine. Everything's fine. It's a virtuous circle. So that is an incredibly bold decision to make. And counterintuitive in our world of the gig economy, where very few people are W-2 employees. What made you decide that to make them W-2? What, what was the driving force there? Sure. So, you know, there's a lot of marketplaces out there, right? There's HomeAdvisor and Angie's List and Thumbtack yeah. and right. Porch and House. And, the, you know, the, the list goes on and, and a couple more end up on that list every day. And they are trying to bring value by creating some some sort of great consumer experience, some sort of great product experience that matches a need that they have with a person who can fulfill that need. And I did that at Grubhub, right? We yeah. like that's we were we were matching people who are hungry with businesses that created food and could get to them quickly. And so one of the original, you know, one of the the first really successful marketplace models, you know, I, sometimes people say that that we were the Uber for food, but Really, Uber was the was Grubhub for cars, right? We came first, so I'm familiar with those models. But the thing that we really did a lot of analysis on, you know, when we were thinking about doing an idea, doing this idea, is we, I, you know, I did some research by way of I wanted to get a, a rain barrel installed in my house, and so I went on a couple different marketplace apps, and I found 13 different vendors who said they would do it. I called on the phone. Can you believe that I use no the app? Phone? Wait, wait, do if, people still use a phone? It's right? nuts. Like, if I could uninstall the phone app from my phone, right. I would be very happy, <laughs> right? So I called. So, like, already the experience is going south, right? So I called 13 different contractors. Yeah. I left 13 voicemails. Three of them called me back, and we scheduled a time for them to come and do the work. And zero of them showed up at the scheduled times. Zero of them showed up at all, actually. And it was, in, it was not capable of getting it done. And so we started looking into, okay, well, that's interesting. There's a bad consumer experience. But why is there a bad consumer experience? Well, the why is there, are, there, aren't, there isn't enough supply for the demand. There just aren't enough skilled workers to do the work. And the ones who are available on marketplaces are typically affected by adverse selection. So the best ones are busy already. Right. They don't need to be on, on the app. And so we said, okay, well, why is that the case? And it, it doesn't take much research to realize that all of the trade schools in the United States, and certainly in Chicago, they're all closed. There's none left. The only people left training tradespeople in the city of Chicago are unions. There's no there are, trade schools in a city the size of Chicago? It's six million. Yeah. So there are two left that are for-profit universities, but those are more about arbitraging the federal yeah. um, student loan guarantees than they are about providing a good ROI on education. Yeah. And so... And the city only has uh, 
something like uh, 40, 48% of the cities, or thir- was it 48 or 38? Well, a large percentage of the cities, I think 38% of the city's capacity is retiring, trades capacity is retiring in the next 10 years. Wow. The city only has enough capacity to retrain about 20% of those of those people. Now, I didn't know all of this before I started the business. I just knew that it's hard to get, it was hard to get a trade person. Yeah. And so, and all this research was, was after the fact, it backed up what we had done, what we had felt in our gut was true. And so we decided that all construction-based marketplace businesses were doomed to fail because the supply is simply not there to match. And so... It's not only the supply, but it's also the quality of the people who making sure they're appropriately trained, not only in their particular skill, but trained in terms of customer service, showing up on time, all the sure. different... Sure. And, and I want to say that the I, I do think it's more a quantity issue than quality issue because the traditional way that people enter the trades is they know somebody, a father, an yeah. uncle, someone who takes interest in them. And it becomes a mentorship and apprenticeship model. And the quality of the tradespeople who go through that path is extremely high. It's just not a, a highly scalable process, and there aren't that many people who can do that. And if you don't have access to one of those people who can teach you, how do you get into the trades, right? So we said, well, if the, if the supply is constrained and limited and decreasing, then marketplace models have a significant disadvantage because they're all going to be chasing after a small, an ever-shrinking set of supply. So what if we just pretended we were a marketplace model and then had a, all of our own workers? And what that implies is that we have to train everyone from scratch. So from very early on, we realized that the, main, the core of our business was going to be a training center. It's not a trade school yet. We're not accredited. We will be someday. But we knew that we could start training people right away. And not just training, as you mentioned, not just training on skills, but training on not just on hard skills like how to tile a backsplash or right. how to replace a toilet or level a door so that it doesn't stick or hang a TV in drywall or in concrete. Right? It turns out that there's a lot of variety of, of work that we train, but then also training people on customer service interaction and, and maybe even more importantly, finding people who value respect and honesty and right. have a strong work ethic, right? So the, those are the characteristics we're looking for. Not necessarily skill. We can train the skill, yeah. right? And so we look for aptitude, and then we train skill, and we train customer service. And and so that's that's become the business. We we train people in our training center, and they, they get to the point where they can start doing work on customers' homes. They shadow a fixer for a period of time. And then the quality of the experience, both both from the person who's there in the home and then also the app and the software that we create that that facilitate communication which is another and facilitate alignment of expectations that becomes the real key of what we're providing and, and right now is this geographically constrained are you in one city do you plan to go into multiple cities how, how do you do that how do you yeah it? by nature it's ex- extremely geographically constrained right. because it's individuals have to go do work who right. are employees and we have to train them which means they have to show up at a place that we train them. And so certainly we've gotten some some pushback on whether or not the idea can scale, right? And to my mind, of course it can scale. It just means that you need to have enough funding to open multiple training centers and hire multiple people. And, and it means hiring enough people so that there's liquidity on the supply side, so that there's enough workers so that the 
it's sort of a, if you build it, they will come. It's not quite true. You still have to advertise and yeah. Right? Yeah. all of those things to get customers. But yeah, but that's, I mean, that's the idea behind it. It is geographically constrained. So right now you're in Chicago. Just in Chicago, yeah. And do you plan to go and expand to other cities at some point? Yeah, I mean, our, our goal is to reboot trade education in the United States. So wow. not only do we expand, plan to expand into other cities, we plan to get very large in many cities. But it's important to get the model tuned just right. You know, we're still we're still refining our curriculum for the training center. We're still figuring out exactly which labs help people understand what needs to be done. You know, we we have a whole lab based curriculum approach where you know people work on sinks and toilets and walls and ceiling fans and all of those things in in a lab environment before they go right. into a person's home. And so you know, we're on version four of those of that those lab experiments. And it's important to get that right before then you go and multiply it by ten times. Oh, totally. So I have a, we have an investment thesis around trust. And if you're inviting somebody into your home, you need to trust. You need to trust that they have the appropriate skills, that they're going to have the appropriate service, aptitude, mm-hmm. and that there's somebody that you're comfortable in having in your home. And, and so yeah. trust is a really big piece of the puzzle if you're going to be inviting somebody into your house. And we think that an employee-based model gives a significant advantage I agree. than a W-2 model, uh, than a, than a uh, contractor model, a 1099 model. Yeah. I mean, if, if you were you know, reading between the lines or hearing between the words, I guess, in this case, around what I was saying about our training system, you know, there's, there's this huge vetting process. But then we're working alongside the employees for weeks before they go into a customer's home right. alone. Right, so we know if they act with respect. We know if they make eye contact with every employee when they come into through the door. Right, we know there's a lot of indicators about whether or not a person is trustworthy that you can see when you work alongside them day by day. That there's simply no way to replicate that on the 1099 side. Right, couldn't agree more. So that is a fundamental step of courage in the sense that you're going against the grain, sort of just counterintuitive yeah. to sort of the what. The gig economy, where, where the mainstream is going, which I completely and totally agree. Yeah, I mean, what we're saying is the entire industry is wrong and has been wrong <laughs> right. for 3,000 years. Well, okay. <laughs> and we have a better way. Yeah. The, yes, that's, it's ridiculous. And then even my goal about the goal that we have of rebooting trade education in the United States, it's so cocky, right? Like, but it also needs to be done. Well, we used to call it a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Let's go forth and conquer. Right. All right. So, moments and courage. So, when, when we started talking prior to this, you had brought up a couple of different examples. We'll talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So, I'm in a unique position as an entrepreneur in the sense that, you know, I, I did this once before. Yeah. And... I didn't and, it, like, and, it worked, and it worked out okay. Did, yeah, it wasn't like right. a modest success, right? We right. had an IPO, and and I can say this because it's been it's been published. I made a shit ton of money, right? <laughs> so that was you, you, literally, you literally in rang, Forbes. You literally rang yeah, the, the bell. bell. Right. I rang the bell. Right. It's a button. It's not a. It's you know. It's not like a little clanger you use. It's a little button, but that you push. But yeah, we rang the bell, and I was right. on the floor when the stock went when when it priced and. The first trade was forty dollars, right? And yeah. and we had priced at sixteen. So I mean, you know, in in ten minutes, I made some money, right? And so that was great. I love it. Everybody should take a company public once. No one would do it twice. Well, right. Elon must do it twice, but nobody else would do it twice. And the reason I say that is not because I'm I'm against the idea of an exit, but because I'm building a different kind of company this time. Right. So I have some assets, right, that I can deploy. I have 
but there's multiple types of assets. There's the dollars. That's the obvious one. Yeah. But I also have relationships. I have relationships with my former coworkers. I mean, I hired almost 4,000 people or over 4,000 people at Grubhub over the course of my tenure there. So if you just take the top 0.1%, right, I have, I have access to some to pretty co- good, some co-founders, pretty good talent, right? right? Yeah. And there were, and a lot of those people who were there were really good. But you know, even even among those great people, we, I was able to hire the very best ones I had worked with right. to start this company. And because I had the the financial assets, I wouldn't have to raise financing. I could probably get th- I could probably get through a Series B funding it myself before it starts to get to be like, okay, this is starting to get a little expensive, right? And that's great. I mean, it's a nice it's a champagne problem, but. I never wanted this to be the Mike show. I never wanted it to be about me. I wanted to create, I want to reboot trade education in the United States. And you don't do that alone, right? And so very quickly, I, I realized I wanted a board that was as highly functioning as the one we had at the former, at the previous business, because the strategic direction, the thing that I really talk about is that a great board really points out your blind spots and yeah. you simply can't see them unless somebody else points them out to you. Right. And I knew. And, and has the honesty. And uh, you have the transparency of the relationship and the trust in the relationship that you're willing to listen to. Certainly. And let me speak to that in a moment about sort of the opening statement that I used at the beginning of the board meetings. But let me talk a little bit about the formation. So I wanted investors not because of their money. I wanted investors because I wanted the way I framed it, the way I phrased it to Troy, who's on our board, who's who's part of math, as as you are aware. Uh, I am. Yeah. uh, You know. The way I phrase it to him is, I, I want, I want to find investors to invest in to give me money at Fixer so that they can come work for me, and by being invested from a capital perspective, they're invested in the business succeeding, and so I wanted to put together a board where where the board members had strategic, good strategic, solid strategic thinking, had relationships outside of what I see, what I have, both for hiring, for community for driving business, for biz dev relationships. You know, I wanted investors who could tell me when I was wrong or they thought I was wrong. You know, I wanted all of those things because I wanted governance for the company that was effective and made ultimately makes us more likely to succeed. That's the rubric. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So I have I had this conversation, this debate with Greg Kaplan, who was the founder and CEO of Redbox. And he had a fairly contentious, difficult board who, in his opinion, made life more difficult, not easier, or added less value than he would have hoped. And his point of view is, I don't want a board. You know, like, <laughs> I want to be free and clear to make my own decisions. And I came at it from a different, I come at it from a different point of view, which is more similar to you, which is, I want to be the dumbest guy in the room. I want to surround myself with some really smart people who've gone through a lot of what I'm about to go through and help me make better decisions. And there's two really fundamentally different approaches. Mm-hmm. And and you've had the you had the luxury to being able to choose that approach. I did, and it's worked. I you know, I, I've had a, a number of examples of board members really adding a ton of value to the right. business, both in the board meeting but outside the board meeting. So, by way of example, Guy Turner who's at Hyde Park Venture Partners, you know, he came, this was like two weeks ago, he came by and we talked about sales and what sales might look like. What does inbound sales conversion or outbound sales look like in a in a business where you know, we have lots of customers and we're consumer oriented? You don't really want to do outbound cold calling, right? right. But, you, but you do want to think about discipline in 
converting leads into customers, right? And so we had a working session about that. And then Troy, who's a math, came by and we talked about growth drivers and you know how it's very hard to isolate variables in terms of we have 20 different things that we're trying to accomplish. And uh, we're, we're, we're 20 different things where we're, we're certainly have a line in the fish line in the water and we, and we, we got a bite. Which of the 20 was it? And it's actually really hard to discover the answer to that question. But having somebody come by and give, give a couple hours of their time to help think through that has been really valuable. Yeah, having a thought partner. It, I, I think it's, it's really – being an entrepreneur sometimes is a lonely place to be. Yeah. And it's really helpful to have a thought partner at a higher strategic level yeah. who can just help you just work through and talk through. And so those two, those two things, I invited both of those those both of those board members yeah. to come and work with me. Yeah. Jessica Yagen, who's also on the board, she told me that she'd really like to come in and do a 360 review talking to all of my employees to give me feedback on whether or not I'm a good leader. I did not <laughs> ask her to do that. That was her idea. Yeah. And it's scary. Like, I kind of don't want to know, you know, like yeah. I've had enough success. Like I, I could just, you know, I could coast on this one, but but it's the right thing to do, right? It's the right thing to do to, to create this non-threading environment where all of my employees can tell a board member what I'm doing wrong. And I trust her not to use that in a negative way at board meetings, things like I'm comfortable her getting that with her getting right. that feedback because we, we trust each other. Right. You know, and that leads to the, the opening statement that I made at the first, that I make it the first board meeting. We're certainly the first board meeting when we have a new board member, which is this is a place for open debate. If you think I'm wrong about something, I want you to tell me. Yeah. The employees who are here representing the company have all been instructed to not necessarily agree with each other. We're not all carrying a party line. So you will see us debate amongst ourselves. We're not trying to present a united front. And it's not a dog and pony show where we're just trying to tell you how great it is. We're trying to expose the most difficult piece of the business to the board so they can tell us how to be better. Well, yes. Yeah, so, that's a pet peeve of mine. I think the best board meetings, like, I don't want CEOs to report to me. You can send me the information. I'll read it ahead of a board meeting. I'll read the financial statements. You're not using the brain power of your board if you're simply reporting. Yeah. Right? To me, the best board meetings are the ones where you, the CEO says, look, I've got these one or two really strategic issues that are keeping me up at night. I'd love your help and brain power collectively to discuss it. Yeah. Like, that's taking advantage of a board. Yeah. And when we frame out what our agenda is for the board meeting, we always, that's what we're asking ourselves. Are we presenting or are we asking for advice? And if right. it's the first, eh. Well, right. to be fair, the board meeting is split into two sections. The first is about presenting. And it's it's an honest look at what, what our numbers are. And yeah. just the act of creating that honest look wow. is actually valuable to the company, even if nobody talks about it. Because yeah. showing it in a polished way is valuable. But the meat of the board meetings is the second half. Right. And we always have it in the second half because the first 45 minutes of a board meeting, everybody's got something to get, they have to get off their chest. And like, <laughs> right. okay, like, let everybody, let everybody speak their piece and then we'll get into the real stuff. Yeah. Anyway, so, I mean, so the board, yeah, to your, but, but to your point, the board, the board meetings, they should be constructive. They should be debate. They should be, of course, not a rubber stamp. Well, you're, you're very fortunate in that. Your two examples, Grubhub and now Fixer, you've had really highly functional boards. You had high quality boards. Not all boards are created equal. You know, I've seen some fairly dysfunctional boards as well as functional boards. Yeah. Right. And I've seen board members who 
act in their own best interest, not necessarily in the best interest of all shareholders. I've seen that too. I, I've been on a number of boards aside from the two companies that yeah. I started. Right. And there were three in particular I did between Grubhub and Fixer, all of which failed. Maybe I'm not a great board member, as it turns out. <laughs> I don't know. But there was some real dysfunction in those boards. And it's painful to see. Yeah. And so there's risk. So talking about moments of courage, by inviting investors to come and be your board members, you are taking a risk. You're taking a risk that they're going to share your values, that they're going to be constructive, that they're going to add value to the company, and they're not going to be create a more dysfunctional. So that was not an easy decision when you have the ability to choose. Certainly. I mean, the board can remove me as CEO, as most boards can. And I made the choice that the benefit outweighed the potential downside. Yeah. No, I got it. All right. So that was one moment in courage. You also had another story you wanted to share. Sure. The other one was um, I have a lot going on in my life, right? So I've got the, I've got the business. I've got a young daughter you know, that I want to spend time with. Yeah. I have athletic and, and entertain, you know, interests outside of work and family even, right? Sure. And then I have friends and all. it's all a bit much. There's not quite enough hours in the week to do it all. And so I've had to be really draconic with my time. And so there are multiple examples every week where I disappoint people because I won't meet with them or I won't schedule time to spend with them because I have a framework of, of where I want to spend my time. And any hour that I spend with someone who's not advancing my goals, either personal or professional, you know, it either takes an hour away from a time, an hour I could have spent with a coworker or an hour I could have spent with my family or an hour yeah. I could have spent with my, one of my friends. Right. And so I'm very tough with my time. So much so that, you know, I, I work four days a week. So I work Monday through Thursday and I work probably, you know, anywhere from eight to 24 hours on any one of those days. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's, it's the um, nature of the beast. Yeah. And, yeah. and, but I reserve Friday for my family and saying that to investors, you can imagine like, they're like, wait, you're a part-time CEO. Like they had a real, it was a real hump to get over with all of the investors that even the ones who were interested in us originally. So I think time management takes some courage in the sense that you're going to disappoint people. Yeah, and, and you gave the example earlier of a potential strategic relationship where a CEO of a big company wanted to meet with you, and you said no because it didn't further your goal. So, yeah, so a large company reached out to us in the retail hardware space, yeah. and we weren't ready for the conversation at the time, and so we said we can't meet right now, which... You don't say that to the CEO and CFO <laughs> of a Fortune 1000 company. You just right, don't. Right. Like, I, I don't have time for you, yeah. right? But we, I thought about it, and I was like, you know, if, including the travel time and all, all the amount of time this is going to take, what if I spent that 10 hours or 16 hours or whatever it was with employees? What if I did the electrical training myself and went on a couple jobs with an employee instead? Like, what would that do in terms of my ability to understand our customers and my coworkers' trust in me? Because, you know, we're doing this really difficult thing where we're merging blue collar and white collar culture. It helps when I go do jobs. It helps when I actually go into customer homes and replace a fan. Absolutely. Right? You, like the deeper you un truly understand and have empathy for both sides of your marketplace, both the customer and the employee and what they're going through, the better able you are to make strategic decisions. Yeah. No question. So that was a disappointment. There was an investor who got all the way through diligence. And I have been very upfront about my the amount of time that I was yeah. spending with the company. 
And that was, in my mind, that's all part of a strategy around hire the best people. Don't be the smartest person in the room. And then let them do their jobs. Get out of their way. Which, as it turns out, requires less of my time. Not only is it like a good professional <laughs> strategy, it aligns with my, my personal... I want to spend 40 hours a week on this company. So if I schedule four days, maybe it'll actually be 40, 40 hours. Instead of if I schedule five, it'll be 55 hours, right? Right. It's more than 40, right. but it's reasonable, right? So... So we had an investor who knew that, a potential investor who knew that up front. And we got all the way through diligence and we had a term sheet. And they said, you know, I just want to talk about a couple things I'm concerned about. And and they listed some concerns and we worked through all of them. But one of them that came up was the the amount of time I was spending. And I said, you know, we talked about this already. And they're like, yeah, we're still a little concerned. And I said, well, maybe, maybe this business isn't right for you. Yeah. And they said, well, we can get our head wrapped around it. I'm like, well... It's sort of out of the bag now. <laughs> right. You're clearly not comfortable with it. And I don't want that pressure. So we ended up turning them down. So uh, I think it's really important. You know, we talk about life. Entrepreneurs, there's been a lot of work talked about life, work, balance. And I think one of the things that gets short shrift is mental health. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs, there's so much stress in getting a business up and off the ground. The pressures... Pressures at home, pressures at work, pressure from investors, and that that finding that balance and giving space for mental health is also, I think, really important. And having the integrity to understand your boundaries and what's important to you and your values and being consistent with them. Yeah, I, it is it is hard, and it, and there was a point early on in the first business where I was working. You know, I, I had weeks that approached 100 hours. Yeah. And but you didn't have a young daughter at the time. I didn't. and That, and make, my, that makes a huge yeah, difference. Yeah. And my wife at the time was overseas on a work assignment. And right. so I was, I, yeah. was still, I, I was just at home alone. <laughs> right. So I was like, all right, well, I'm just going to work. Right. And I think, you know, my take on work-life balance has been that the there's no firm lines between them. They, they all meld together. Yeah. Uh, some people approach that by saying, you know, work stops when I go home. For me, it's it all melts together, and I think about adjusting the pressures, like where so that the equilibrium ends up with the mix that I want. So, by only being in the office four days, it means that fifth day, if I choose to work and I get through email and I have some quiet time to work through those things, it's my choice. You know, if my if my daughter is you know happy watching a a, a movie Whatever. and I'm going to do an hour of email, you know, it's my choice. They do all meld together, but I've been intentional about trying to figure out where the pressures are going to be so that so that the equilibrium is a thing that, that that I can be happy with. Yeah, no, I totally understand. In fact, I do something very similar, not a whole day. I use a calendar program called Calendly that allows people to book my time. And I always set aside an hour a day every day for me, for my own personal time where I don't allow anybody to book it. I think time management is a critical part of success for any executive. Yeah. So one of the tough decisions I've had to make has been, I, I feel like I have something to contribute to the entrepreneurial community and to talk to other entrepreneurs. Yeah. But I simply don't have the capacity to put hours into that when I could be spending those hours on my business. And so I've had to say no to to probably ninety five percent of people who reach out and ask me for something. Yeah. And some. It's actually gotten to the point where sometimes I don't even have time to respond with a no. I just, right. I just can't. Like, I mean, I get twenty-ish requests from students a week. 
yeah, asking but- for my time. And I just, I can't say, I can't say no nicely to all of them. <laughs> right. And it kills me to say no <laughs> abruptly. Yeah. And I can't, so I just, I just don't respond, which it feels like I wasn't raised that way, right? Like it feels rude, but it's also just a reality of what I'm facing. And so I had to make that tough decision. Yeah, no, I, to- I totally get it. I completely understand. So, so thank you. Thanks for sharing these stories. It's really important. I love the mission of rebooting trade education in the United States. So your time management actually has a greater purpose. If you can reboot the trade education in the United States and create jobs and a career with dignity and a living wage to millions of Americans, wow. I mean, talk about... Yeah, it'd be all right, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you delivered, was it like a, a third of America gets their food from Grubhub or It's whatever? a lot. Yeah, it's a it's lot. It's millions of people. Millions yeah. of like. Yeah. So not only can you deliver, have you delivered food, but you could deliver jobs. I tell you, Saturday afternoons, like, I don't cook. <laughs> and I don't do handyman work at the house. Yeah. Like, I, I created the solution to those two problems. Yeah. So, like, I'm good. You're good. I love the courage it took to fundamentally shift your business model to hire W-2 employees as opposed to take the easy way out and follow the gig economy and make it 1099s. I think that fundamentally owning and controlling the supply and making sure that supply is well-trained and consistent and have the right values that represent you and represent the customers well is a really smart decision and takes a lot of courage. I also am completely aligned and agree with finding investors that can add value. And so I, I think we have a saying, which is you have to curate your board every much as you curate your management team. And I, I think oftentimes entrepreneurs don't really truly understand and appreciate. I know we're very respectful. We know how hard it is for entrepreneurs to raise money, but not all money is equal. Yeah. Right. And so you've had the ability to really find and put together a board that can help. Yeah. And I think this time, your thoughts around time management, I think, is an issue that every single entrepreneur faces. And I think, I have a friend, you probably know Suzanne Muchin. Yep. Yep. Suzanne has a saying, what you say no to is every bit as important as what you say yes to. And you can think of that from a strategic perspective, but also as a tactical time management perspective. And I think that sometimes it's easy for entrepreneurs to just you know, say yes, do what whatever comes their way. And I think being more brutal and thoughtful about time management will ultimately lead to better success. Yeah. So thanks for sharing those stories. I was happy to spend the time here. No problem. (laughs) All right. So I want to thank Mike Evans, CEO of Fixer, and most especially a big shout out to our producer, editor, sound engineer, and all-around jack-of-all-trades, Christy Domzowski, for her excellent support. Without her, this podcast would not be even remotely possible. So thank you, Christy. 